think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Before we get into the episode, uh, we have a quick housekeeping announcement type thing. As you are probably very well aware, Dean is teaching this really dope class at uh, the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And um, you probably want to get in on it. And if you haven't gotten in on it, um, here's your chance. So here's the deal. You like learning about Christian radical politics. You do because you listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, here's your chance for a big, uh, a big free ride in Dean's upcoming class at the Institute for Christian Studies. Uh, the class, if you don't remember, is called Organized Religion, Christianity, and Anti-Capitalism in the U.S., Canada. So uh, here's your chance. You can get in for free. We'll give you the $90 Canadian and you can take this class and uh, get get a good education. Don't I mean, like, can't say a communist never did anything for you after this one. Only after this one. Yeah, only after this one, though. (laughs) (laughs) This is that struggle. Uh, So to get in on this uh, whole deal, you have to do the following. We can't like pay for everybody to take this class. That would be great. But we actually do need full communism for that one. Um, so to get in on this uh, deal, though, you need to record a two-minute audio clip of yourself reading your favorite radical Bible verse and telling us what it means to you or just in general. Uh, two, make that audio clip an MP3 or whatever. Uh, three, send it send it to us. That's it. Just uh, send it to the old Magnificast email account. Um, we'll take those, and we'll probably even play some of the clips uh, on a future episode because why wouldn't we? Once we get your audio clip, however, we'll put your name in a big giant cartoonish top hat with uh, everyone else's name and we'll draw one of those names at random if we pick your name then you won the christian communist lottery and we'll pay the tuition (laughs) for you to take dean's class at ics uh we'll also pick one runner-up that gets a cool magnificast t-shirt or uh we'll give you like a pin or a sticker or whatever if you already have a t-shirt if you're like really sort of um og magnificast fan so um (laughs) Submissions are due on December 21st. That's really soon, but we want to make sure we get someone kind of picked and set up for this way in advance. Uh, So just sign up, get into it, send us that good audio clip. Yeah, uh, go ahead and record it. You can use your phone, you can use your computer, whatever. It doesn't have to be the best quality of your life. Uh, We just have to be able to understand you. And very important that it's like two minutes max, because otherwise it will be way too long. Uh, And you can email it at themagnificast.gmail.com. Uh, all right, 
Today, though, we're not talking about that scholarship or that class. Uh, you have to wait till January, and then you will hear more about it than you ever wanted to, probably. <laughs> Instead, we're talking about uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide. That's uh, that's my best French. Um, the former president of Haiti and a liberation theologian himself. So there's a lot that we could talk about related to this this week, but instead of tackling the whole history of Haiti, which is a lot, um, we thought we'd focus in on two writings from Aristide and use that to understand a little bit of what's going on or what has gone on in Haiti. So one is an introduction to a collection of writings by Toussaint Louverture, the revolutionary leader of Haiti's slave rebellion, and the other is from a collection of Aristide's sermons and spiritual writings um, in the parish of the poor. You might be asking yourself, who's Toussaint L'Overture? Why can't Matt say his name right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great question. Those are both great questions. So, Dean, uh, who is he? <laughs> uh, well, um, Toussaint is a very important figure in the history of the Haitian Revolution, um, which is a revolution that a lot of people don't know enough about. So when we tell the history of modern revolutions, I mean, people always zero in on like the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And then maybe if they have time, you know, they think about some other ones um, like the Prussian Revolution or whatever. Uh, but those are the big ones, uh, France and America. Uh, but uh, rarely do people talk about the Haitian Revolution, which is too bad because it's actually hugely significant, like world historically significant. Um, so it was a, a revolution that took a really long time, um, and it was primarily uh, spurred on by slave revolts um, that coalesced into a, a huge militant movement that was ultimately successful. So the successful uh, black slave-led uh, revolution that eventually established a republic. Um, and Toussaint was kind of, he was like a, a person of significant power and authority within that revolution. He refused to be named like the king, which is what some people wanted to do uh, as foreign interests. Um, he was a, a sort of people's leader. Um He's a really interesting character for a lot of reasons. He himself was a Christian, um, but as we'll see in a little bit, his Catholicism is kind of like, like it takes some unpacking. Um, and he is still to this day like a, a massively inspirational figure for liberation movements and decolonial movements um, and a really, I guess, important guy. So Haitian Revolution, something people don't talk about enough and Toussaint, a person that people don't talk about enough. yeah um and if you're still wondering like man wish i knew more about the haitian revolution uh let me plug another podcast right quick the podcast is called revolutions uh you can find it on itunes or whatever um it's a really neat podcast well okay sorry it's a history podcast and actually uh it can be incredibly dry at times but it's still very good and uh if you go back a ways uh there's a there's a it's broken up into seasons uh, season four has 19 episodes about the history of Haiti. That's right. Um, 19 one hour episodes <laughs> about the history of Haiti that you can go listen to on your phone. Um, and let me tell you, they're good. Every single one of them. I've listened to them all and they're fantastic. Um, I haven't retained a lot of that knowledge, but uh, that's just the nature of podcasts, <laughs> I suppose. Okay. Now, you know a little bit something about Toussaint and that good, good Haitian revolution. Uh, now we're going to jump over and talk about Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He was elected president in December of 1990 with 67% of the vote. That's uh, pretty good. He's a popular guy. 
From there on, there's a bunch of coups, some successful, some not. Aristide had to go into exile a few times and come back. The United States and Canada were both friendly at first, or at least it seemed like they might have been. And then they doubled back and supported the right. So there's a lot of weird imperialism stuff going on here. Um, the whole history is a lot. So if you're really interested, and you definitely should be, you can read a lot of good books about uh, Aristide and also just Haiti in general. One we've been looking at is Peter Hallward's book, Damning the Flood, which is a look at Aristide's career in Haiti uh, in particular. Yeah, and one kind of final note, too, before we get into it, just on Aristide himself, a uh, little background. So he used to be a Catholic priest with the Cilician Order, or Salesian Order, um, which came into being during the Industrial Revolution to help poor children. Uh, they're kind of a big deal. That same order educated him when he was a poor child himself, so he decided to join them because of that experience. He became a parish priest, and he was a prominent voice for the poor. Uh, he worked in poor areas of Haiti directly, and several people tried to assassinate him um, while he was doing that. So kind of like a Oscar Romero situation, you know, just really speaking up for um, people who didn't have any, any voice uh, in Haiti. And then in 1988, there's a pretty huge kind of radicalizing moment. Um, I mean, he's already re really radical, but this is like a huge deal. Uh, his church parishioners were attacked while police stood by. Um, and the building that he, uh, like the church building um, where he was a pastor, was burned to the ground. So 13 people died and 77 people were wounded. They were shot and beat with machetes. It's a really brutal situation. Uh, and then that same year, he was expelled from the order uh, because they said that he was inciting violence, which he disagreed with. And he tried to appeal that expulsion like he didn't want to get expelled, um, but to no avail. And then uh, in 1994, after he had been president already, he ended up leaving the priesthood over conflicts with the church hierarchy. Um, but as some of the writings, especially the first writing that we're going to look at, um, will show he definitely doesn't give up like his christianity or his liberation theology as a result um it's sort of like i don't know the radicalism of his theology uh created a, a relationship that couldn't couldn't really be evened out or or ironed out with the actual church hierarchy so really really interesting guy really intense biography um somebody who uh was radicalized by the struggle his entire life and often used Christian language to understand and articulate and broaden or expand that struggle. So uh, I'm no Aristide scholar, and I think this is actually the first time I really started reading him was just this week uh, in preparation for this episode. But uh, every single turn, whenever I started reading the stuff he wrote, I just kept thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this guy was president. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he was a priest, that's for sure. And like, you know, we've read Radical Priest, so that's like not very surprising. But he's a he was the president of a country. That's pretty wild. It's really wild. It's wild to think if you walk by like a, a bookstore and you see all the books written by like Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or whoever. Um, and then you like read like Aristide's books. You're like, man, this is a different level of intelligence. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, especially because like, you know. Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton probably never have written a book in their entire life. Um, or if they did, you know, somebody else probably wrote most of it for them or whatever. But Aristide's a real <laughs> smart dude. So I don't know. Something worth thinking about. Um, just, just one of those, like, those really stupid things I'm, like, really amazed at. Like, people being alive at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Smart president. I mean, though. it's actually... <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that Aristide is still alive right now. Yeah. And he's not even, like, super old. He's in his 60s, I think. Um 
which is really also a crazy thing, I think, because a lot of people talk about liberation theology as though it's a, a past movement or, you know, this thing that maybe used to be really important, but now it's, you know, like everybody's kind of moved on. Um, but that is not true. Could not be further from the truth, um, at least in Haiti. Um, and Haiti is directly tied to U.S. and Canadian uh, imperialist interests. So liberation theology is uh, still a, a major player, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Well, the first thing we read was um, an introduction to a book that Aristide wrote. Um, the book is just called The Haitian Revolution by Toussaint La Overture. Uh, Dean and I are both really bad French, so uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I'm not sorry, though, really. It's not my fault that I'm bad at French. <laughs> it's this dang American school system uh, <laughs> that should have taught me French. Anyways, uh uh, I'll just keep calling him Toussaint because I can say Toussaint, but not La Overture. That's just too much for my for my American mouth, um, my Midwest mumble. Uh, so Toussaint, <laughs> the best the best part about only being contactable via textual mediums is uh, nobody can email in and be like it's Toussaint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do urge everyone to tweet us and tell us the right pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> tweet us and phonetically phonetically spell it out there for us. Um, <laughs> So Aristide writes this preface for Toussaint's book about the Haitian Revolution, and it's pretty cool. Um, the Haitian Revolution is a pretty interesting historical event. The first sort of like slave society to become a democracy and sort of liberate itself. It's pretty dope. Love that kind of thing. Um, but it's really interesting because Jean-Bertrand Aristide had himself just gone through sort of a, a bit of a revolution the years before his presidency. Um, we didn't quite get to this part in our biographical sketch, but... Uh, for uh, for quite a long time, uh, Haiti was ruled by sort of a family dynasty of fascist kind of dudes, uh, Francois Duvalier, and then also uh, Jean-Claude Duvalier, known as Papa Doc and Baby Doc. Papa Doc is such a bad nickname, but uh, it doesn't make sense. Papa Doc and Papa John's are both sort of uh, fascist things in our society. So there you go. Uh, Baby Doc is the worst sequel to Boss Baby. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You got that right. That's a good joke, and I don't, even, I don't even know how to say it. I don't even know how to respond to it. You just let it live its own life, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Baby duck. Oh, my God. So as a preface uh, to Toussaint L'Overture's The Haitian Revolution, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, again, the former president of Haiti, does some biographical work that introduces us not only to Toussaint's life and the Haitian Revolution in general, but also what Aristide calls his theological legacy. Through this, we can see what Aristide finds so interesting about Toussaint, and also why Aristide, a president, a priest, and also a liberation theologian, is like an interesting inheritor of Toussaint and Haiti's revolutionary legacy. So uh, we can start getting into it a little bit. We're going to pull some quotes out and talk about some of the big themes in this, and then we'll move on to talking about his sermons. So, Dean, what was the first thing that kind of sticks out to you uh, from this preface? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff, but right off the bat, he wants to create a really interesting dichotomy between um, religion as it comes in the form of uh, colonizers and religion as it comes uh, through liberators. Um, so he plays off Columbus, Christopher Columbus and Toussaint um, against each other kind of throughout, which is really interesting. And he has a really cool sort of driving question um, that I'll set up here. So he says, slavery was imposed in the name of God. Is this the same God who was at the center of Toussaint's faith? In 1492, Christopher Columbus declared that the enslaved Africans were savages in need of civilizing and presented them with the cross of Jesus Christ. How could Toussaint confess his faith in that cross 
and fiercely oppose slavery. From the point of view of liberation theology, the question we might pose is, between Toussaint and Columbus, who was the true follower of Jesus, the liberer par excellence? Um, I think that sounds like a really basic question, obviously, uh, but it's really complicated because Christianity and Catholicism in particular was the vehicle through which uh, colonialism and especially in Haiti's case, slavery uh, was maintained and reproduced and, um, you know, ultimately sort of led to the very problems that Toussaint wanted to overcome. Uh, And to kind of make that a a central driving question, I think is really good. I don't know that Aristide ever comes back to it in a really direct way. um, But I think that's kind of the strength of it, that he sort of lets the ambiguity hang out there and then tries to kind of riff on it and like think in a bunch of different directions with it. What is interesting to me about this question is the way that there is, I think, a a rhetoric here that we're used to, but there's a pretty interesting twist on it because it is just kind of like left open. Um, I think a lot of times, uh, especially on Twitter, I mean, Twitter is the worst, but um, a lot of people, a lot of times people on Twitter will say something like, are the people who proclaim to be Christians, uh, but like, you know, actively participate in the oppression of people like actually true followers of Jesus can Donald Trump or Jerry Mm -hmm. Falwell or whoever really be a true Christian. And like, on the one hand, like, yeah, they are actually true followers of Jesus and they are doing like a type of evil in the world that only uh, Christians uh, can do. Uh, However, uh, what, what Aristide's doing here is something a little bit different uh, in the sense that he like leaves it open. It's not that um, Columbus isn't doing something that is like uh, the legacy of Christendom or something like that, but it's that, uh, Toussaint does something good with Jesus, whereas Columbus does something pretty bad. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it is true that, I mean, I always get a bit nervous about claims to direct, the, like, the direct truth of Jesus or, or being a true follower of Jesus, um, just because there's a lot of complicated things wrapped into it. Uh, but I think it's also interesting to look at that rhetorical move as a way of Aristide trying to secure what the legacy of Jesus should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so in saying that you're a true follower of Jesus who was the liberator par excellence. I mean, not as it, not only is he only already kind of stacking the question, right? Obviously to be in favor of Toussaint, but uh, maybe even more importantly, he's stacking the question to make Jesus the kind of person who would prefigure someone who would lead slaves out of slavery mm-hmm. uh, in Haiti. And I think that's actually the more interesting move is like, not so much even necessarily establishing the true Jesus, but establishing the kind of Jesus that you want um, in a certain kind of... Uh, legacy of freedom or uh, or love or whatever that's the kind of thing he tries to spin out in the rest of the article yeah that's good huh well after that bit aristide goes on to talk about toussaint with relation to uh the theology of liberation which is um you know not a thing that existed when toussaint was alive but um might not be something that'd be so unfamiliar to his way of thinking uh so aristide says this what is the theology of liberation and what do we mean when we speak of a quote, preferential option for the poor. 25 years ago, my students would ask, does the option for the poor mean an option against the rich? I always answered with a resounding no. The option for the poor is preferential and not exclusive. There's a resonance here with Toussaint's impulse throughout his life, and notably in the constitution he drafted, to put slaves first, but to include all. 
Um, okay, so we've said a lot about this type of thing on our podcast before <laughs> and about what it means uh, <laughs> for the like the rich to be sort of liberated from their wealth. That's the thing we've talked about in the past, and it's good. It's a good take. I'm not going to distance myself from it at all. Um, so, like, when you hear Aristide say, does a preferential option for the poor mean an option against the rich? And he says no. Like, I guess that might seem a little bit lame at first, but let me tell you, it's actually okay. Um, <laughs> so... Um, this theological orientation like is an important setting for Toussaint as a historical figure because um, Toussaint's not the only sort of revolutionary leader at the time. There's all kinds of other folks um, uh, in Haiti sort of like working through the revolution together and figuring out like what it is that they should be doing. So um, this orientation that uh, the slaves come first, but they don't exclude the others is a really important thing that sets Toussaint apart from the others proposing new orientations from Haiti at the time. Um, Aristide goes on to talk about um, some other historical stuff uh, in that, like, you know, there are other people who thought, like, well, only um, only f- like freed blacks should be, um, you know, the people that this new republic cares about and like leave sort of slavery untouched or something. Uh, but uh, Toussaint uh, is not one of those people. He thought slaves should be freed first and then we should worry about the rest. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating, too, because Aristide sort of looks at Toussaint's faith as a... Um, I don't know, it's hard to find the right word exactly. Uh, his faith sort of holds him back from getting like lost in the revolutionary like bloodlust that you could get lost in, um, but not in such a way that makes him like a moralizing critic of the revolution either. Um, like he's kind of he has occupies this really interesting role because, uh, on the one hand, like Aristide says that he gets criticized for being too soft on uh, the rich or on like white wealthy slave owners or plantation owners. Um, and then on the other hand, he gets criticized for like identifying too strongly with like one party or the other. Um, and I think that's like really interesting to kind of note the um, just like the awkward place that Toussaint is in and to see Aristide trying to locate a theological dimension to that is really kind of a neat way of, of like sorting out. Uh, why that would be beyond just like a really obvious like knee jerk. Well, he wasn't revolutionary enough or he wasn't revolutionary in the right way or something like that. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, I mean, it's just evidence of the ways that his political imagination was really directly related to his theological imagination. Yeah, yeah. And it's cool, too, because Aristide isn't trying to say that there aren't any problems with Toussaint or or whatever. Um, He's just trying to attend to how theology illuminates him as a person in a way that other discourses sometimes ignore or or can't quite wrap their heads around. Yeah, exactly. And I guess when I say like his theological imagination, I mean, uh, Aristide even references too that some people thought that he was using Catholicism to like disingenuously prop up the revolution or something. But I think this this demonstrates that like it was an authentic type of faith that this is something that he's really struggling with. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I want to pull out a quote that is probably my favorite quote in this whole introduction um, (laughs) for a lot of reasons, Uh, but it tries to attend to the balance between the uh, presence of Christianity as a kind of liberating and driving force and also the politics of that situation. Um, and again, Aristide just does, I think, like a really masterful job sort of performing all those contradictions at once. Uh, but he comes out swinging <laughs> right away in this paragraph. So he says, preaching the message of Jesus is an important step, but in reality, it is not the definitive one. The ultimate act undertaken by those willing to reach the pinnacle of love for the poor is to be in deep communion and communication with the community of faith. 
The communion with his people characterized Toussaint's leadership. Brothers and friends, he proclaimed, I want liberty and equality to reign in St. Domingue. I am working to make that happen. Unite yourselves to us, brother, and fight with us for the same cause. That's the end of the quote. And then R.C. goes on to say, While Columbus enslaved in the name of God, Toussaint freed in the name of love, which for us is another name for God. This is Toussaint's theological legacy. This whole paragraph is such an interesting unit of text, if you kind of look at it all together, because it starts off with him saying, Preaching the message of Jesus is important, but not definitive. And then it ends on a note, uh, sort of pulling Toussaint's theological legacy out. Um, I think, I don't know, there's just like a lot of really cool rhetorical twists and turns there. And what I like about it is Aristide is trying to both say that um, you shouldn't really be obsessed with like the faith content of something at every turn. Like, I, you know, there are a lot of evangelicals who'll be like, yeah, cool, it's cool that you support the poor, but what about, like, their eternal souls? Mm-hmm. Uh, cool about their earthly fate, but what about their eternal fate? Um, so Toussaint is like, yeah, listen, I mean, you should think harder about that position. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then, like, he gets to the end, and he also wants to say, but that doesn't mean that, like, the theological isn't uh, necessary or even a part of this. In fact, like, it, it opens up a different avenue for thinking theologically. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just probably my favorite passage in the whole introduction. Yeah, it's definitely a cool passage. Um, it is interesting. It is a way, uh, where Toussaint is kind of a materialist thinker, mm-hmm. and, but he's also not like, <laughs> he's a materialist thinker in some ways, but also not like completely, uh, disconnecting that from like the religious way of thinking as well. I don't know. It's a good sort of both and. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. It's a good both and. Cool. <laughs> Glad I put it that way. <laughs> So uh, Aristide, after kind of uh, going through the uh, history of the Haitian Revolution and some of the theological stuff that Toussaint might give us in the way that he thought, uh, he concludes the preface about Toussaint with a pretty interesting list of steps Haiti ought to take to complete Toussaint's political vision. This part sticks out to me because while the history is super important and super interesting, Aristide is seeing that like what Haiti is kind of bound up in is continuing this political vision or it has to somehow come to terms with its political inheritance. It started as a revolutionary project that uh, emphasized the equality of people and the liberation of people, especially slaves. And uh, that uh, Aristide still sees that as part of its uh, political project today is really interesting. So, uh, Aristide concludes uh, with a list that I'll read in just a second. But before that, he says, We maintain that for any society to call itself civilized, it must be ready to address this issue of restitution and reparations within a framework of mutual respect. Just as Toussaint could not predict how long it would take to end slavery, we cannot know how long it will take to end poverty or when restitution will come. So it's interesting because slavery took a lot longer to end than Toussaint thought. And I think poverty is going to take a lot longer to end than any of us think. I don't know. I think it's going to take a long time. So maybe I'm not, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm not in this group. Anyways, um, Aristide comes up, comes up with this like sort of like list of 10 things. Some things he kind of repeats more than once in with different emphases, which is fine. Um, but these are the things that he thinks that Haiti ought to sort of consider uh, moving forward. So this is based on um, his observations in 2008. So um, some things have changed, and we'll address that in a second. But his list of 10 things is uh, is like this. So he thinks that the people of Haiti need to struggle against psychological enslavement, which is a thing that uh, he ties in with Toussaint's observations earlier on, that um, you know it's one thing to be freed as a slave, but it's a different to sort of uh, throw off the shackles of thinking um, within the framework of colonization. 
Um, he thinks that there needs to be a globalization of human solidarity. Sounds pretty good. Uh, he thinks that we ought to resist neoliberalism, which is also good. Uh, four, uh, the portion of access to microcredit. Five, democracy, because classical liberalism sucks, um, is kind of the feel. Um, <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. He, he goes out of his way to specifically name that classical liberalism uh, promises a sort of equality and freedom of uh, speech for all people, but it doesn't really deliver on that. Uh, then he says, uh, democracy is still good again. <laughs> That's <laughs> Five and six are both that uh, democracy is great. Uh, hard to argue with it. Um, <laughs> hard to argue with that, I guess. Number seven, uh, he thinks that Haiti should invest in more humanist type of stuff. So education, healthcare, feeding kids. Eight is make other countries keep up their deals with Haiti. Don't let anyone kind of go back on them. Nine uh, is respecting the rights of women. Solid, <laughs> solid nine. And then <laughs> 10 is my favorite and uh, probably needs the most uh, kind of resetting here because of the uh, historical situation that's happened since 2008, but uh, the world, the the world banks, the various financial institutions in different countries should cancel Haiti's debt uh, because uh, it's in the Bible. Duh. <laughs> that is a really good ending. Yeah, man, I'm I'm such a sucker for uh, people who write things and then have a list of ten demands at the end. Uh, that's my favorite part of the manifesto. <laughs> it's my favorite part of uh, this one right here. I love lists of ten. Oof. <laughs> uh, those decalogues, they'll get you. I know. Oh, the Ten Commandments. They're great, too. That's a lot of them. Ten of Listen, them. Listen, there's three um, things I can think of off the top of my head, so there must be more. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really neat uh, list of things. What I What I find really striking about it is that he says things like neoliberalism is bad, classical liberalism is bad, um, democracy is good but what he never says is like communism is like what he wants or like a super radical um socialism uh and i think that is actually really fascinating because aristide isn't actually like uh he's not like a marxist leninist or something like that um and i mean basically he's like he's a leftist guy but uh you know not in any kind of recognizable like political terms that we might think of um in the history of communism and the fact that Haiti still got so brutally disciplined, uh, even though it wasn't sort of doing what like Cuba was trying to do, for example, is like a really telling lesson. Like these demands are pretty, um, like pretty tame. I mean, they are massive, like they're massive demands, but of all the things that you could and that people have demanded, <laughs> like, uh, the West is pretty lucky that he doesn't demand more, I think in a certain way. Uh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think the West is lucky. <laughs> um, well, I mean, he got, uh, there's a coup against him. So I guess um, the West didn't like it either way. But yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I Again, like, I don't know enough about ASD to talk about him uh, as like a politician or even as like a political thinker. Uh, but it does seem like, I mean, he wants to make this connection with Toussaint who was not a liberal sort of in like the classical liberal sense, but is a liberal in sort of a different way of thinking about it. Um, so, I mean, he's a leftist. He's dealing with the particular political tradition of his country. And I think that's something that's pretty interesting nonetheless, even if he's not a socialist specifically. Yeah. It reminds me of what Fidel says to Fry Beto in the Fidel and religion book, um, where he basically says like, yeah, we're communists. We, uh, you know, we ended up doing the whole communism thing. Uh, but what we were actually motivated by was like the decolonial struggle, uh, at first. 
Um, you know, it's like all the way back to people like the Zapatistas naming their movement after Zapata. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding like those kinds of of uh, like initial kind of openings for the struggle against Western capitalism and latching onto that, and then maybe figuring out what kind of ideological tools you could use later to help you realize that. Um, I mean, it's just really kind of interesting how uh, in the Caribbean and in Mexico and obviously a lot of other places, um, there's this sort of national memory that goes back uh, all the way to like the founding of their countries, and they want to like keep on pushing. Uh, that revolution, revolutionary impulse that like didn't really get fully realized or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, it's a good memory. Yeah. Um. So there's been a little bit of historical development since Aristide wrote this in 2008. So that was 10 years ago. Um. In 2010, following a really bad earthquake that you might remember in Haiti, uh, the World Bank and certain governments forgave some of Haiti's world debt or global debt. Uh, but not all of it. And then later in 2015, France forgave a big loan that they had given to Haiti, but they refused to pay back the money that they took from Haiti as a colonial power, which is something that Aristide had demanded in 2004. Um, So Aristide was like, hey, you forced Haiti to pay you all this money back when we were a colony. We want it back so that we can actually rebuild our country. Um, They said no. So then in 2015, they were like, yeah, we'll forgive this loan, but we're not going to pay you that money. And instead, they said that they would consider investing in Haiti instead. Um, So just a huge, huge dick move on France's part. What I really find interesting about Aristide's point here about um, like the colonial reparations is that uh, Aristide's point is that since they were a colony, there wasn't a democratically elected person from Haiti, like from like a Haitian government position that could like actually make a decision in the interest of the people. So asking for reparations on that colonial money is like super important. Uh, because it's like a coerced type of money. It's like the the Haitian people don't actually like deserve to pay that back. Like, why would they? It's not money that they actually ever agreed to. Yeah, I mean, it, it is stolen 100%. Yeah, so like, come on. <laughs> How's that for an argument? Hey, I'm going go to I'm gonna go to the IMF and be like, hey, come on. <laughs> uh, I think that'll work. Nobody's tried that. Yeah. Um, nobody's tried the hey, come on. I know, that's weird. Uh, I should get, uh, I'm going to call up Greece tomorrow too and be like hey have you guys asked just told them hey no. <laughs> the whole idea i mean in hey, general on. of like having like debt to the world bank or like debt between countries is such a weird idea to me anyways yeah for real <laughs> uh and it also like just goes to show you how bad colonialism is because the reason that france won't give that money back is like they feel that they earned it somehow or that they like deserve to not uh lose some of their wealth um, even though they gained it by literally enslaving people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, it's so it's such a weird situation. I mean, clo- it's like uh, I don't mean it to sound like I'm like just now realizing how bad colonialism is for the first time, but like <laughs> I'm just like I guess it's sort of being reawakened in me that like yeah, it is so is so bad and coercive and um, just give just France. Hey, come on. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I think, like, another reason that it's important to be familiar with this recent history is that it's still, like, a live issue. Like, Haiti is still riddled with problems, and the political situation there is very tense. Um, Aristide is back in Haiti uh, just sort of recently in the last few years. Um, He is not the president, and he didn't run in the last election. Um, There's a lot of really interesting things about that involving even Barack Obama and um, the Canadian government, but... 
uh, read more about that in your own time, I guess. Um, the point being that I feel like if you're a Christian and you're on the left, um, you kind of like Haiti is is maybe one of the most significant sites of struggle right now, I think, in the world. Like, OK, there's no other historical example of liberation theology becoming so significant that like a priest became the president <laughs> and then got deposed by uh like american interests and uh like several times got deposed (laughs) um so i think that's just like a really important kind of um need to understand what's going on there to kind of keep reading about it and uh to maybe understand like not just the theological legacy of toussaint but also the theological legacy that aristide is is presently um creating for the rest of us also just think about how many evangelicals probably have taken a mission trip there yeah, for real. Yuck. Evangelicals suck, um, but let's move right along. Um, sorry, <laughs> that's not fair. Evangelicals don't suck. They just have a lot of sort of baggage they need to figure out, and I wish they would. We're going to move on to a different reading from Aristide. Uh, it's a sermon that he gave called A Call to Holiness. Aristide is interested in how he and Haiti can be good inheritors of Toussaint and Haiti's revolutionary heritage. Riffing off this, we're interested in the theological and political legacy of Aristide himself. And Toussaint, too, but, like, Aristide, because he's, like, a priest and a liberation theologian. And the president. That's still so wild. Okay. So to get a feel for what Aristide himself was about, we turn to a few of the sermons that he gave while he was a priest uh, and before he was president. And also before um, they ousted Baby Doc. Um, Baby Doc's back in Haiti, too, by the way, which is absolutely crazy to me. But whatever. Um, Yeah. Baby Doc is the weirdest Mario villain. (laughs) Yeah, um I love play- I love playing Baby Doc in Super Smash Brothers and just like running him off the side. Yeah, I mean, at least Papa Doc in Smash Brothers makes sense because uh, he's Papa Doc <laughs> and he's the one that Mario gets. But Baby Doc does not make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> so, a call to holiness. <laughs> <laughs> a call to holiness was an Easter Sunday sermon that Aristide delivered in 1985. Um, during this time, there was like a lot of political unrest that was starting to bubble up against Baby Doc. Uh, Baby Doc was a bad guy. I think I've said that a few times, but let me just reemphasize. Jean-Claude Duvalier, uh, Baby Doc, uh, did all kinds of pretty bad stuff. People fled the country. Um, he's really well known for whatever reason. There's a huge uh, <laughs> entry on his Wikipedia page about this like crazy wedding he had that cost $2 million. So um, no one, just not a great guy. Um Anyways, we'll get into the sermon specifically in a minute, but you'll really quickly see what side of the social unrest Aristide is on. Uh, following the sermon in the very next year, in 1986, there was a popular uprising in Haiti, and Duvalier was ousted, and he had to flee the country and lived in exile for a while. And that's pretty dope. Um, love love that. The sermon starts off sermony enough. It focuses on the themes of truth and holiness, all that good stuff you usually hear in church. Uh, Aristide goes on to note the ways the Catholic Church celebrates the lives of saints and how they're sort of demonstrations of holiness. He also makes a good aside that, like, isn't it weird that there aren't any Haitian saints, um, even though there is one that's up for canonization right now? So, anyways, developments. Then Aristide reminds us, too, that there are, uh, there are saints everywhere, and they're not just the ones that are canonized. There are all kinds of saints just in, like, the regular holy people of the church. Yeah, uh, this point is really interesting. I mean, it reminds me of Katie Grimes' stuff on saints um, and the politics of canonization that we've talked to her about on this podcast before. Um, Her book, Future of the Saints, is super good, by the way. Um, She talks about uh, Pierre Toussaint, who is the the guy who is up for canonization in the Catholic Church now. 
Um, and he chose, he took the name Toussaint after he gained his freedom as a slave um, in honor of Toussaint Louverture. So there's a direct connection there, but like, as Katie points out, it's really complicated. Um, but anyway, here's a quote that I think sort of illustrates some of the themes that she was working with um, and helps us see a little bit of what Aristide is trying to do. So he writes, uh, or he says, Out of the 180 saints whom Paul VI proclaimed officially for the Universal Church, 64 came from Spain, France, and Italy. It makes us feel that the scale is weighted perhaps a little too heavily toward the great nations. If there are, for example, any Haitians officially recognized as saints, we haven't heard about it back in the 80s. And yet there are and have been so many Haitians who are truly holy and who ought to have been proclaimed as saints for the universal church. Um, I think that <laughs> that line that he has there about how the, the scale is weighted a little too heavily toward the great nations is really an interesting one. Uh, to kind of note that like the, even the institutional memory of the church itself is colonial. Um doesn't really give Haiti its due. Uh, and that what Aristide is trying to do is sort of inspire a confidence in the Haitian people themselves um, to sort of find like some sort of uh, a feeling of holiness within their own faith communities because, you know, the Pope isn't going to do it for them. Yeah, it's definitely a good point. I think it's always worth pulling out the ways that our institutions um, have that colonial memory that we need to find ways to subvert that. So uh, Aristide is maybe one way we can start thinking through that. Well, after that, he goes on to call his congregation to express their holiness more vocally. He says, let us put everything that is created in the darkness aside and that holiness grow through prayer. Um, if you're wondering like when the like really rad stuff comes up, uh, just hold on to your butts because it's like, this is a good setup for everything. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking like, man, this just sounds like I'm, like church, uh, just wait one minute. <laughs> <laughs> so uh after he says that bit aristide warns that there are also a lot of unholy people in the world there are lots of nice holy people uh in haiti and other places but there are also a lot of unholy people the bible gives us a lot of examples of unholy people uh so then he pulls one out and says have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the lord that's an example of unholy people seems pretty unholy to me <laughs> Don't eat up my people. It's people eaters. People eaters. Yikes. So then uh, then Aristide kind of comes to make his point about holiness that I think is really fun. Uh, it's fun and good and powerful here, there, not just fun. So uh, Aristide says, in the factories here, the workers of iniquity pay Haitians 7% of what they pay people in other countries. Isn't that eating the people? Isn't that sucking the blood of my brothers and sisters who work here? of the poor who work in the factories for the big bosses, and every time the big capitalist bosses pay out one dollar, they take in four. So now we get to the point, this whole setup of holiness is to kind of pull out um, the people who are unholy, using religious language to talk about actual political problems, actual economic problems that uh, they'd face in Haiti, in a way that maybe you're more accustomed to hearing people talk on this podcast. <laughs> um yeah, and also things continue to escalate and get even cooler in the sermon. Uh, one quick note of, of context to remind us, too, is that um, around this time, there was a lot of talk about having a general strike. And this sermon comes when that's like a very real possibility kind of looming on the horizon. But general strikes need a lot of support. Um, and you're about to see Aristide give some not so subtle <laughs> suggestions in that direction uh so he says this 
Things must change. In Leviticus 25-23, the Lord says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine. All the land is the Lord's, and we are all God's children. So the Lord asked all his children, the slaves, not to work the land after a period of seven years. He asked them to call a huge strike and not to work. And so every seven years, the slaves held a giant strike, a general strike, because they were slaving for the bosses. They were working like donkeys, as the proverb says. The multitude works like a donkey to decorate a few palace horses. So every seven years, the Lord asked his children, the slaves, to stop their work and hold a strike, and they called that year the Sabbatik, because in Hebrew, the number seven is Sheba. So every seven years, the slaves had a strike so that they could catch their breath. Then they decided that every seven years was not enough, and they added every 50 years. And every 50 years, they held a strike, and the people who had land had to partition their land with the slaves. They obliged the landlords to redistribute the land. And this year was called the Jubilee, the year of grace. Thus, we who are slaves must one day share the land. We can feel it in our gut, because the land is not for a little fistful of gluttons, but for us all. Uh, So first of all, don't say that we never do any biblical studies on this podcast. Uh, secondly, <laughs> Leviticus, uh, 25, 23 as, um, the invocation of a general strike <laughs> is really good. Uh, really wild and very cool. I'm all about it. All about that hermeneutic. Yeah. I love it so much. Um, I'm on board. Like, I mean, the sort of Jubilee thing always sounds good to me, but, uh, if you call it a strike, I'm especially <laughs> in, um, it's so, it's so interesting to me that like, Aristide said this in the 80s, and since then, people, you know, plenty of sort of radical Christian types have gone on to talk about Jubilee as like an economic sort of situation, but they've never drawn on the same, um, the same analogy or the same framework of thinking, thinking through it. Um, I don't know. Seems like a good idea to me. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, it's just really interesting, not even given only the kind of, um, like, clever reading or whatever um but given the political climate around right like he's trying to create a connection for people between um some things that they are already invested in and real political power that they could actually wield uh to stop the machinations of a really unjust society um like the general strike is a huge weapon it's one that like people are afraid to use because it is so big (laughs) and there's a lot of stake and trying to like find a way to i guess preach a sermon that would make people um get like riled up about that um is really a neat thing tying it to a biblical vision of justice is also i mean it's a it's a great rhetorical move it's a great political move it makes a lot of sense uh okay so um the general strike we've uh deemed and judged good it's not, not a surprise. <laughs> Official policy. <laughs> yeah. Um but it gets better even. Again, um it gets it gets even better. So not only is there just a general strike, there's something else. Okay, so Aristide goes on to say, the year of grace demands a redistribution of the land. So says the Bible. Someone who does not work to ensure that the children of God have their little land to farm, so that the children of God have a little land to build a house upon, a person who does not work for this and who does not allow others to work for this, that person is not living in a state of grace, but he is living in a state of sin. What's up? That's so good. Today, we can say that a Christian who wishes to grow in holiness must ask that the land be redistributed. He must ask that the big landholders give land to the poor, and that the poor work that land and make it fruitful. 
The Lord asks that the state no longer have the poor put their names on paper without knowing that the kind of contract they are entering into. Not only does the year of Jubilee mean a general strike, but it also means the redistribution of land. Um, this is put in such strong terms that I can really appreciate. It's a really good kind of like Christian humanism that I think has some really radical potential behind it that I think that most people don't recognize. Um, that if you don't want everyone to be able to flourish, especially the poor, then like you're not doing <laughs> like then you're like a pretty crappy Christian. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for sure. Even that language where he says uh, a Christian who wishes to grow in holiness must ask that the land be redistributed is really neat. Um, I love that because I have heard so many people talk about growing in holiness and what they mean is like going to Bible study yeah. at a coffee shop once a week with your accountability partners. Um, and I love that Aristide is like, no, you, you actually have to <laughs> you have to ask for the dissolution of, uh, of landed capital. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, uh, me over here. Um, being a Methodist and all those other good Methodists out there, we belong to the holiness tradition uh, of Protestant <laughs> Christianity. And that's exactly, I mean, you know, basically when people say holiness tradition, they do mean like going to Bible study and like uh, putting your hands in the air. Like you just don't care uh, when it comes to singing praise <laughs> and worship songs. If holiness meant to ask for the land to be redistributed, uh, I'd feel a little bit differently about my my Protestant tradition here. <laughs> I mean, that's the key, though. Just push in that direction. It's right yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, you could probably, somebody who's actually good at theology could say a lot of things about that. Um, I think it's just really, it's really cool to link, like, personal piety to social justice in that way as well. Um, like, the private and public distinction is erased. Like, if you want to be personally holy, then you have to demand public justice. Um, that's something that I think a lot of Christians are afraid to say and sometimes social justice christians do say this type of thing but they aren't as specific as this and that's what i think is important right um i go to a church that's pretty socially justice oriented and people like to talk about you know holiness as sort of systemic um systemic justice but like uh rarely do i ever hear anyone in my congregation actually like name names or name problems um specifically so i think that this is a good practice that uh linking uh Linking personal piety to an actual systemic problem uh, that causes injustice is good. And I think like naming it as such is important. Yeah, for sure. I also like, you know, the implication that you actually can't really be holy if you don't, if you're not working toward those things. Um, this is something that I appreciate so much about like the Friendly Fire Collective in Philadelphia is they draw off of these um, like really forceful uh, moral rhetorics within Christianity and they deploy them because that's what they're for. <laughs> like, they're not afraid to be like, uh, hey, are you a police officer? I'm sorry, you're an apostate. Like, you've abandoned the faith. I don't know, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> there's something about that that's um, really important and not just playful. Like, uh, that is what those kinds of, of language games, like, that's how they're meant to be played. Um, it's just that most of the time we let people play them who are already powerful uh, or, like, let them be played when they don't make any kind of difference in our actual life. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm always a sucker for that, like, when someone takes uh, moral language really seriously such that they make a, a tangible demand. Um, that's, like, a really important thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's a really good point that that's what they're for. <laughs> that they're for... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, 
good. The Bible should be definitely a language that we use to confront the powerful. Like that is exactly the point. I mean, that's circling back around to the very first point that Aristide made in the preface uh, about Toussaint that like, yeah, I mean, there's a Christianity of Columbus and there's a Christianity of Toussaint. And uh, which one do you think Christ the Liberator is about? Not right. Not the Columbus one. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So maybe we can kind of uh, pull this around, wrap some things up. Um, I think like one thing I would want to drive home is that there is so much history to Aristide's life um there's a lot of history to Haiti as well but uh just I mean literally the last like well basically my lifetime like my whole lifetime has been Aristide's political career (laughs) um and there's so many twists and turns and I think it's just really important for Christians to try their best to be uh familiar with that in such a way that we can also maybe make use of that moral language to make tangible demands um and not just kind of say like Oh, it's too bad that like Haiti is a poor nation. Like there are reasons that it's poor, and uh, most of the people behind those region reasons probably think that they're Christians, um, and probably are Christians in one way or another. And uh, all the more reason I think for Christians to sort of think more about Jesus the Liberator, and what it would mean to take Toussaint seriously, to take Aristide seriously as um, you know more saints, I guess, in the, the cloud of, of witnesses. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you are into this episode and all that we talked about, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Hey, we were just looking at our Patreon list and dang, there's a lot of people that support us and we are super thankful to all of you. Um, Yeah, holy cow. Yeah. Anyways, we have some uh, Patreon related news that's coming up that we'll probably announce next week or something. So keep an ear out for that, Patreon friends. Um, All of your support means a lot to us. And uh, I don't know, always really surprised that there's such a community behind the show. It's really nice. Yeah, we should say, too, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't say it, but I'm irresponsibly going to. Um, we have some big plans coming up maybe next year, uh, if all goes well, and we both have enough time to do it. And uh, the Patreon will come in handy to make that a real thing. So I won't say anything more than that, but just to say that we're thinking about how to make these things work in a way that continues to build a real-life Christian left. Yeah, for sure. Um Yep, definitely don't want to be irresponsible in saying that there's going to be a Magnificast, the TV show. Don't want to say anything like that. <laughs> I don't want to say, I don't want to spoil anyone's uh, surprise by saying there's going to be a Magnificast, the video game, but they're all out there, probably in the future. You never know. Um, just looming on the horizon. They could happen, they could not. It's who hard would, to say. Who would play me in, in the movie? TV show. In, in the adaptation, the TV adaptation, serially. Every week, who, who could do a good job? Uh, Jean Claude Van Damme. <laughs> <laughs> okay sure um yeah i don't know who would do a great job for you maybe alec baldwin just because he's a master of impressions i watch him on snl and he he's just like nailing trump so i, I can only imagine what he could do um, <laughs> that's with, with so many hours of that's audio. the most offensive thing you've ever said to me <laughs> <laughs> i think i would I, you know if i got to ask anybody i'd just be like um i'd call up uh adam sandler see what he's doing yeah, he, yeah, Adam Sandler and Kevin James as the two of us doing a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics sounds like some good TV. Yeah, I think definitely a lot of people would watch that Magnificast, the TV show. Yeah. Um, I've seen every episode of King of Queens, and I'm not sure of it. <laughs> I don't know. We shouldn't turn this into a confession, but... Yeah, don't. 
Don't tell us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, anyways, uh, thanks for supporting us on Patreon, everybody. That got real weird real quick. Um, <laughs> keep supporting us, though. We really appreciate it. Anyways, we're going to talk about that more in the future. Uh, take Dean's class. Sign up for the Matt and Dean Memorial Scholarship. It is a memorial scholarship. We're not dead. We're alive. But it is. we're going to give you money to take a class if you sign up. So um, Someday we will be dead, and then it really will be a memorial scholarship. <laughs> and I, I think it's really a shame that people don't get to experience their own memorial scholarships you know, during their lifetime. So we just want to get a little taste of that glory. That's right. Uh, from dust you come to dust you shall return. Just embracing that real Christian life. <laughs> Um, cool. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the music, Amario Armstrong. The intro music is so good every single time. Uh, and thanks to Theological Spoon for the outro music, even though we don't really ask you if we can use it. Um, but they, they're okay with it. It's fine. Uh, cool. They linked to us on their website, so I think they're implicitly okay That's true. They did, they did mention us in a blog, and they said, wow, how cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, <laughs> see you next time. There'll be no damn between us and our Lord. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, where you keep your hoods up.